0: Through this book, we're well over halfway through now, in verse 4, where Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, the weapons of our warfare. In chapter 10, now Paul begins the final section of this letter. He has rejoiced in the repentance of many at Corinth, in chapter 7. And as a fruit of that repentance, he calls on the church to take up the collection that they were eager to do a year earlier and complete that grace to the church of Jerusalem, which would thereby show some of the fruits of that repentance. Now in chapter 10, he's going to more directly address the recalcitrant rebels still at Corinth and the false teachers who are leading them astray from the simplicity of Christ. Paul here is going to address the criticism about his weakness, his rudeness of speech, and how the Corinthians themselves are misunderstanding something about Paul's ministry. And we're going to look at this under three things under this heading. First, the disposition of our warfare. Looking at Paul and what he says here. There's a certain way that these weapons work. Then the weapons of our warfare, what are they in this context? And then thirdly, the stages of warfare, which Paul will mention three with three participles as he relates it to his ministry, which was being criticized, and the authority of that ministry. Because as we said before, to oppose the apostle Paul is to oppose God in no uncertain terms because he is the apostle of God inspired by God to write and to preach what he did. And so Paul now, defending his integrity against the false teachers and the remaining people at Corinth who have not yet repented, he is loving the church at Corinth. So first, consider the disposition. Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, which means human, but they're mighty through God. There's a certain way in which these weapons function, a certain disposition that's by the power of the Spirit. Now in verse 10, you see that they're saying his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and speech contemptible. Later in chapter 11, they will say his speech is rude. They would say, Paul, when he's with us, he's very base. And in fact, in verse 1, when Paul says, who, is, who in presence and am base among you, but being absent and bold towards you, that's not his assessment of himself. That's their criticism of him. That when he's with us, he's really a coward. He's servile. Oh, but when he's away, he can write some pretty strong letters. He's weak. In other words, he lacks the power of the Spirit in his ministry, for which Paul, in these last few chapters, is going to speak about that. It's much like sometimes we do. We can write a pretty powerful, weighty email, and we see that person face-to-face, we kind of cower. Now, that's what Paul is being accused of. But the Corinthians, and particularly the false teachers, misunderstand something about the disposition of the weapons of Paul's warfare and his ministry. And so in verse 1, he tells us the first disposition. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Meekness. The word meekness is a disposition that is submissive to the divine will and the divine providence, so that it keeps us from having to lash out in anger and in frustration and in resentment and in bitterness under great provocation. The kind of provocation that Paul is under by the very church that he loves so dearly for criticizing him, slandering him. And yet Paul, totally misunderstood by the church, his ministry, The disposition of his ministry is one of the meekness and gentleness of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said he was the meek and lowly Lamb of God in heart. So Paul seeks to model this disposition in a way that is compassionate, in a way that's forgiving, in a way that's long-suffering, in a way that is in fact meek. As we read this morning from Numbers 12, meek Meekness was assigned to Moses as being one of the meekest men of all the earth. And what was the expression of the portrait of Moses' meekness? Under great provocation, he was being challenged by Miriam and Aaron of his authority of God to be the very leader of Israel. He allowed God to defend him. He did not get angry. He did not lash out. And God defended Moses. And then Moses prayed for Miriam at the request of Aaron. That is the spirit of meekness by which Paul sought to conduct himself and model his authority as a minister and apostle of Jesus Christ. And the church at Corinth didn't understand it. And beloved, for us today as a church, the very centerpiece, one of the centerpieces of how we model Christ is through meekness and gentleness. In Galatians 5.23, it's the fruit of the Spirit, or one of them, meekness. In Matthew 5, in about the third verse, it's the character of the citizens of the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek for theirs, or for they shall inherit the kingdom, or the earth. They shall inherit the earth. It is like the glue that binds us together in unity in Ephesians 4.2, where Paul calls on the church to walk worthy of the vocation where they are called with all lowliness and meekness. Meekness. It is what Paul tells Timothy is to be the disposition of his authority as a minister as he seeks to instruct those that oppose themselves. How? In meekness. Not striving, not lashing out, not getting angry when people oppose you, but in meekness instructing those that really are opposing themselves peradventure, that God would grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So Timothy, in teaching the truth, is to have a disposition of submission to the divine will and submission to the providence of God, so that under great provocation, in gentleness and meekness, not striving, he does what? He instructs with the truth peradventure that God would sovereignly grant repentance How? Through the truth to the acknowledging of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's this meekness and gentleness by which Paul sought to model in his ministry that we as a church must model in our life together. How was Paul able to do that? Obviously he says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty to or through God. It was through God the Spirit that with this authority that he possessed directly from the ascended Christ, he was empowered in meekness. But if you really want to know the key, he tells us himself in Titus chapter 3, that passage that I know I allude to very often. He would say to Titus, Titus, when you're on the island of Crete and you're instructing the church, and the ministers there are instructing the church, put them, put the church in remembrance to be subject To principalities and powers, that's authorities. To obey every magistrate, every God-given authority. And to be ready for every good work, not only in the church, but in the community. If the magistrates would call on the church for assistance and help in some good work of crisis, be ready for it. To speak evil of no man, not to slander, not to blaspheme, not to defame, not to vilify, any man, particularly in office. And, of course, all men. To be no brawlers. Do not be fond of quarreling and arguing and fighting, whether physical or in debates. But gentle, showing... Here's the gentleness. These are not the same two Greek words, but it's the same idea. But gentle, showing all meekness to all men, for which Paul would strive by the power of the Spirit to conduct himself in that manner. How did Paul, how was he able under such provocation and how will you under provocation be able to show all meekness and gentleness to all men? Paul said to Titus because we ourselves were once upon a time. Paul never forgot the grace of God that came to him when he was a rebel on the road to Damascus unwilling He was recalcitrant. He was the rebel. And he remembered that he was one time foolish, disobedient, and deceived. He served all kinds of idols that he desired and found pleasure in. And he lived in malice and envy, and he was hateful and hating one another. See, beloved, the day the day that a transgender walks into this building and sits beside you. Will you young people snicker under your breath and laugh because you don't know what you were or you still are as you were born? Will you older people become indignant and want to escort this person out of the building because you have forgotten at the very core of your being there's no difference. You were serving Lust and pleasure, just like that person. And you will fail to be compassionate and meek and gentle as soon as you forget what you once were. Paul never forgot the rescuing grace of God, the rebel that he was, and therefore that empowered him by the Spirit to model the gentleness and the meekness of Jesus. And Jesus was not a sinner, and yet what did he do? He came down in humility, to die and give Himself for us. And now the disposition of this warfare, the disposition of these weapons, they will malfunction without the spirit of meekness and the spirit of gentleness, or what James calls the meekness of wisdom. But interestingly, there is another disposition that seems to be in sharp contrast. Verse 2 But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, which means Paul is planning a third visit. It's his final visit to Corinth. He is coming at a future time. Right now, he's displaying the meekness and gentleness of Christ. But when I'm present with you, I will come with confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, the rebels and the false teachers. Which I think, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now walking according to the flesh here can mean in the body or immoral, but they don't mean immoral when it comes to Paul. They mean he's just walking as a human. He doesn't have any power of the Spirit. So he's going to come in a bold and courageous way. Now this is contrasting the meekness and gentleness of Christ, but it is not a contradiction. Anymore than when Jesus said he is the meek and lowly lamb in heart is a contradiction of cleansing the temple, right? He went in and overthrew the tables of money and he made a whip and drove out every animal in that temple with passion. Did he lose his meekness? No. No. Because meekness is that disposition under the divine will and the divine providence that acts according to the Word with a compassion and a gentleness or with authoritative action that is deliberate and decisive, which is what Jesus did. So Paul is saying he's waiting. He is meek. He is compassionate. He's waiting for their repentance. But with the same authority, with the same meekness, he will act decisively as a leader, and with authority when he comes to Corinth, to everyone who is not repentant. Well, what's he going to do? Well, if you'll wait, he'll tell us in verse 6 what he's going to do. Now, don't go there yet. So the disposition of this soldier in warfare is one where he knows how to wait. He knows how to wait under the command of the leader, but he knows how to be decisive and to move swiftly into battle. When necessary. But in both cases, Paul is meek in his gentleness or he's meek with his authority when he has an act under the divine will. He's submissive in both. Just like Jesus is meek in heart, always even in passion when he says, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. He's acting for the glory of God in submission to the divine will. And so as a church, it takes great Balance and wisdom, always in meekness under God's will, but knowing when to be long-suffering and gentle and when to act decisively. Now, decisive action doesn't mean we go from meekness or gentleness to mean spiritedness. It just means we're acting according to the Word of God. As God says in every occasion, whether we are being compassionate and waiting, as Paul is waiting for these uh, men and women, or whether he's going to arrive and be decisive in taking action in what he needs to do. So this is the disposition, without this disposition of meekness, which comes under the word of God, which submits to God's providence without provocation, then what happens? The weapons are not mighty through God, the weapons are mighty through our flesh, or I should say weak, because then all we're doing is trying to use authority as a church to be vindictive, lash out, mean-spirited, unforgiving, bitter, and resentful. So we need the power of God's grace and the power of the Spirit to model the meekness and gentleness of Christ in compassion that waits and in the compassion that acts decisively. Number two, the weapons of our warfare. Now Paul will say this In verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Now, carnal here can mean immoral. But here he just means human weapons. We are not warring after just human means or human methods. We do walk in the flesh. I am a human. I'm just common. I'm like everybody else. I struggle with sin. Yes, I'm walking in the flesh, But I'm not warring by that means. Why, Paul? Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now let's look at the weapons. We see the disposition as we wield those weapons. But what are they? Well, interestingly, Paul doesn't give us the weapons, plural. I mean, did you hear of any weapons when I read that text to you? I mean, we could go to Ephesians 6, and there's the armor of God, plural. But here, there's no breastplate. There's no shield. There's no sword. There's no sandals. There's no girdle. None of that's here. What does Paul mean, the weapons of our warfare? Well, I think what Paul is saying here, and we'll try to show this, is that there's a common thread. There's something that binds the armor all together so that it functions in the power of the Spirit. That without this binding element, it falls flat. It loses its power. It doesn't have the ability to do what Paul says the weapons do. Well, let's take modern warfare, for example. If we looked at some of the weapons of modern warfare, we would say that Paul is saying the ammunition for every weapon is exactly the same. The F-35 jet uses this kind of missile. The M-240 machine gun uses this kind of bullet. The M-1 tank uses this kind of cartridge. The hand grenade uses this kind of explosive material. The missile launcher, one kind of missile launcher. And it's the same with every weapon. Okay, to understand what this ammunition is, we ask ourselves, what is the weapon or the weapons doing? They are pulling down strongholds. A stronghold is a castle. A castle, as you know, is a large building typically of the medieval period that is specifically designed to fortify it so that it's impenetrable. So it's got massive walls, thick, massive high walls, and at the top you've got battlements, which are regularly spaced openings where archers can pelt you with arrows, rain down arrows from the top. And so when you think of a castle, whether you've ever seen one in person or a picture, or maybe some of the replicas in our, in our states, the first image is, I can't get in. There's no way to get in. But there is one way to get in, particularly in ancient warfare, and that's the battering ram. The only way, if you try to use a ladder, the arrows come down, they push away the ladder, you're dead. The only successful way to break down the walls, to bust in the gate, is a battering ram, which was a large log or attached to strings or some kind of system that it would swing with a a metal ram's head on the front of it. Just enough blows to the gate, it splinters it, it compromises it, and then all the weaponry on the outside, all the armor then is able to infiltrate the inside. Now that's the imagery that Paul is giving of the weapons. And what is the one battering ram? It's the knowledge of God. See, the very thing that every imagination and high thing is exalting itself against is the very thing that demolishes the stronghold. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 16, 18, where He said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Which these gates connected to a massive wall called Hades or hell will not keep the gospel, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God in that context. It will not keep the gospel from penetrating the stronghold and rescuing those in the stronghold and bringing them out. Paul has already told us what this knowledge is in this letter. The knowledge of God. It's the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Thanks be to God who causeth us always to triumph in Christ and does what? Manifest the savour of the knowledge of God by us in every place. The aroma of the knowledge of God is said to be by Paul, his ministry and his team going out and manifesting the knowledge of God. That knowledge is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he would say, For we preach Christ Jesus our Lord, or we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. Now what is the light of the knowledge? In verse 5, it's the gospel that Paul preaches. It's the gospel in verse 4, that the God of this world hath blinded the minds that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ would shine. So while there are multiple weapons of our warfare, Ephesians 6, The ammunition that must be used to bind all of the armor together is the knowledge of God in Christ alone. Paul would even say in chapter 6 of the same letter, when he was approving himself as the minister of God in all patience, he would say, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness. The word of truth, the truth of Christ throughout Scripture, is the power of God that does what? It's the armor of righteousness. That's the same word for weapons, and it's plural. Truth, singular, is the power of God to demolish the strongholds of castle-like thinking in man's hearts and minds. Now here's the application as a church, beloved, and Paul is talking here about his ministry and how it was misunderstood to be weak. He said, in fact, it's powerful because the weapon is not man's wisdom or ingenuity. The weapon of his warfare that empowers the weapons of God, the armor, is the knowledge of God for which strongholds are erecting themselves against. And so our application is this. As a church, in preaching, whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, whether it's exegetical, thematically or topically, The preaching must bring into sharp, clear focus the saving power of the knowledge of God in Christ or it fails, period. And you as a church must hold this pulpit accountable that if it doesn't do that, you escort the man out of the pulpit because it's just that critical and that important. And say, well, how do you get the saving knowledge out of every passion of Scripture? According to John 5.39, search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, but they, Scriptures, plural, testify of me. So it doesn't mean in every sermon we talk about the historical events of the cross, but it does mean in every sermon we lift up the supremacy of the saving power of the knowledge of God in the gospel or in Jesus Christ. In every text. or preaching fails. It fails. Right. If that's the weapon or the ammunition that empowers the weapons of Paul's warfare, let's look at the stages of how and what Paul is talking about that brings the stronghold down. Three participles. Verse 5, casting down. Verse 5, bringing or capturing every thought. Verse 6, having in a readiness to revenge. All disobedience. Paul is talking about the authority of his ministry, and we can transfer that to the authority of the church. Nobody here is apostles. The church has been invested with authority as it relates to the gospel and the word of God. So it's believed by some men that Paul is using a pattern of the Roman army. When they would go in to conquer the Greeks, they would do three things. They would demolish their strongholds, take down the walls, everything they were hiding in. Secondly, they would lead captive the women and children after the men were slaughtered. Thirdly, they would punish by making them slaves. Paul Paul seems to follow this pattern. Casting down every imagination, capturing every thought to the obedience of Christ, and then ready to revenge. There's some kind of punishment Paul is ready to administer when he comes to Corinth to all unrepentant members of the church of Corinth. Because remember, he is the apostle of God. So let's look at this casting down the knowledge of God for which the imagination, which means the reasonings of man and every elevated thing, every stronghold that elevates its thoughts because that's what's going to be captured against the knowledge of God. We use that very knowledge to demolish by the power of the Spirit. So let's look at a few strongholds. A few castles in the reasonings of man. First... The stronghold of man's self-righteousness. It must be demolished. What I'm afraid that's happening in our culture of Christianity in America is that rather than tear down strongholds, we're building the strongholds in the imaginations and the reasonings of men by the way we preach. There are no weapons if we do that if we erect a stronghold for which men to hide in rather than tear it down with the very knowledge of God's gospel, the Son of Jesus Christ, that it's designed to do. Now, how does this happen? First, man must come to an utter and complete hopelessness. And I mean absolute hopelessness. You must lose all hope before you ever see this saving power in a way that's salvific. Think about what Paul does in the book of Romans. He would first say that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. It's God's very power because it reveals God's righteousness. Then he spends three chapters to reveal what? Our unrighteousness. Because you can't see God's righteousness And to your utterly hopeless in your own righteousness. So that wall must be completely destroyed before you'll ever come to Christ. So he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then three chapters. Three chapters talking about the fact that we are not good and we are unrighteous. Now how much preaching... In America today, is tearing down the wall of our righteousness by talking about our depravity and our unrighteousness. No, I think in many places, we're erecting the stronghold. You're not so bad, come as you are, stay as you are, there's no need to repent. And many churches are capitulating to the pressures of our society and they won't talk about sin. Without it, there won't be any salvation. Because we must come to a complete and utter hopelessness in ourselves. And so Paul does that in Romans by plowing the furrows of the the heart of man and showing him that he is not right with God. So that his mouth would stop and he would be condemned before God. Imagine that in our culture today. Preaching that's designed to show you you are a condemned sinner without any hope in this world. But that's not the end of where Paul was going. Romans 1.18 starts because Paul wants to reveal the power of the gospel in a revelation of God's righteousness by revealing our hopelessness to get us to Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God is revealed or manifested. When? Only when you are absolutely bankrupt and without hope. Paul masterfully takes us through our condemnation and our unrighteousness for the specific purpose to show us the righteousness of God in the gospel so that we may receive it. If I erect a stronghold by denying your depravity and your sinfulness and your guilt and your condemnation, I'm denying the very revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel. And that's what's happening in our culture. And it's it's a growing trend. Just believe, just easy believism. You cannot believe savingly unless you are hopeless. John chapter 16. This is a stronghold that's being built today. Come as you are. Stay as you are. There's no need to repent. Just believe. Well, what are you believing about the gospel? In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless... It is expedient that I go away. If I do not go away, the comforter will not come. But if I go away, I will send him. And when he has come, he's going to do something. Now, who is the comforter? John 14, 26. The comforter is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you and bring to remembrance all things that I've said unto you. That's going to be truth. He's going to remind you what I said, and you're going to put it in red letters in the Bible. No, it wasn't red letters, but that's what Jesus said told them, and that's what the Holy Spirit reminded them, and they recorded it in the Bible. In John 15, 26, the Comforter, which is the Spirit of truth, He will guide you into all truth. So the Holy Ghost is the Comforter, He's the Spirit of truth, He gave the apostles the truth of God's Word, and they deposited it in the canon of Scripture. Now Jesus said in John 16, when the Comforter comes, who I will send to you, this is what He's going to do. He's going to reprove the world of sin, which means convict the comforter is a convictor why would he do that because you do not believe on jesus you cannot believe savingly on christ until you are convinced and you're convicted that there is no hope for you anywhere on this planet except for jesus christ and the holy spirit himself aims to convict people What happens then if we ascend the pulpit in America and we don't talk about sin and we don't talk about conviction? We are erecting the very stronghold that the truth is going and supposed to tear down and demolish. And it's happening in our culture. Will you choose a church like that? Will you be led to go to a church who says believe, believe, believe but never talks about the doctrine of sin or repentance? We're just erecting strongholds. Of sin because they don't believe on me, of righteousness because I go to the Father. That's the next step. What are we believing about Jesus? It's a revelation of God's righteousness. What are we believing about ourselves? We are not right. We are sinful. We are not good. We are rebels. And how did this righteousness come? He went to his Father by means of the wrath of God, dying, bearing, and being resurrected. And people today even preach that Jesus just died to be a good example. They deny the propitiatory sacrifice of the atoning work of Christ, thereby denying that God is wrathful because we all know He's a God of love. What's happening? They're building strongholds that the gospel is designed to rip apart. And people are feeling good about their sin. Of judgment because the prince prince of this world is judged. See. Sin, to believe in Jesus, that He's righteousness and we're not. And then the prince of the world is judged, that leads us to holiness, because His power is cast out. All right there, in the comforter, and what He came to do. So if I do not preach about the doctrine of sin, which is designed to show God's righteousness, I am working against the very comforter that Jesus sent. And I'm afraid a growing trend in our culture is just that. You're not so bad. You're not like those other guys. God loves you. God wants you to be happy. Come as you are. Stay as you are. Jesus says, come through faith and repentance. And you turn from your sin or you don't come. Second stronghold. The stronghold of man's wisdom, self-reliance. I mean, this is really what Paul is after in the first and second letters to this church. Because they were enamored with wisdom. That's why they were being duped by these false teachers. Oh, how eloquent and of great oratorical skill they were. They were impressive with their words. When Paul goes into Corinth, he specifically decides. He says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the saving knowledge of the gospel. He will not use the gospel like training wheels on your bicycle. It just kind of gives you some balance, give you some help, and then when you get going, you can kind of use self-help, self-improvement. You can fix your marriage, you can fix your family, you can fix your church. Just use these training wheels. Paul said, I will know nothing but the gospel for your marriage and your conflict and your church and your family and your workplace and everything. No self-help here. But yet in our culture of Christianity in America, it's do these seven things, put these seven things in place, and the gospel is nowhere to be found. Paul said, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And our speech and our preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit. See, what were they saying? Paul has no power. Paul said, no, we came not with this eloquent speech of the false teachers. We came in proof and evidence of the spirit and of power. So that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What is that power? It's the knowledge, the saving knowledge of Christ in the gospel for everything that you are. And it destroys self-reliance and man's wisdom. And what is man's wisdom? Man's solutions for man's problems for man's glory. And Paul will have none of it. For which the Corinthian church had been duped by it. They were so impressed with these men. They were so dynamic and spectacular. Paul says, that's a stronghold that I came to Corinth to tear down. He would say in verse 17 of chapter 1, For Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with words of wisdom, or the wisdom of words, but that the cross of Christ would be made of none effect. Let me repeat that. Sounds a little better. So, Paul was not sent to baptize, but the priest, the gospel. Not with words of wisdom, unless the cross would lose its power. It would be nullified. If Paul adds a smattering, if he puts training wheels on the bicycle. The cross loses all of its power. Not some of it. Not a little bit of you, a little bit of Christ. Not a whole lot of Christ, a little bit of you. It's Christ alone. Now what is the power that will be void if Paul adds the wisdom of men? Surprisingly, it's two. And the first one's very surprising. Verse 18. For the, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. Now get this. The power of the cross is that it should be foolishness to every unbeliever. When you add man's wisdom, that's not so foolish to me, is it to you? You A little self-help, get the job done, do what needs to be done, you're not so bad. Now the gospel is no longer foolish in churches in America. Because we all know if you're going to get people in the door, you can't make it sound foolish or they won't believe it. That's it. Paul preached the wisdom of God in the gospel because unbelievers think it's foolish. So if the gospel loses its power to unbelievers, they say, well, you know, prosperity, that's not so bad. I mean, I I can get into that. That's not foolishness to me. Works, that's not so bad. My wisdom, I can can get into that. And so now it's no longer foolish. It's being received by unbelievers, which is happening in America. Now listen, don't, don't make the assumption that because a church is small, they're doing it right, and a church is big, they're doing it wrong. That's not always the case. You know they're doing it wrong because of what they say. And you can read it online, and I have. So don't drive by a big church and say, well, they must be doing it. No. What are they saying? And I've read it for myself. They're taking away the foolishness of the cross and it brings people in. What other power is made void? But to us which are saved, it's the power of God. When we add a little bit of man's wisdom, we are erecting a stronghold. We're not tearing it down. And man's wisdom that's being introduced is taking away the saving power, the sanctifying power, the transforming power of the knowledge of God because the gospel is then made void, null, impotent, anemic, no power. Paul says, everything I'm about is to preach in such a way, the gospel alone, so that it pulls down your self-reliance. And who is it power to? To them who are called effectually, Paul would say, right? It's foolishness to everybody until you're called. And now it's power. Will we lose the power of the gospel because we introduce a little self-help, a little self-improvement? No, we want to demolish in our own thinking the strongholds of man's wisdom. Jesus rejoiced in this, and Luke 11 in uh, Matthew 25, or Matthew chapter uh, 11, he would say, "I thank Thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and you revealed it unto babes. Why? Even so, Father, for this seemed good in thy sight, which means it was according to His good pleasure. What did He hide from the wise and prudent contextually? The gospel. He hides the gospel from wise, prudent men and women because wise, prudent men and women take glory for what they do. God is veiling the gospel to that kind of person. Why? It is His good pleasure and He's revealing it to babies. You want to know why? Because His glory is exalted by weak, bankrupt, pitiful little babies, spiritually, right? What does a baby need? A mom, a dad, to carry them, to feed them, to help them. Wise people don't need a gospel, a Savior, to help them, to to change their diaper and to keep them. They don't need that. They do it themselves. God is hiding the gospel from such men and He's revealing it to childlike people because God's good pleasure in the hiding and revealing is the good pleasure He has in His all-sufficient grace and He will give it to no one. No one. If then I preach in such a way to introduce wisdom of man to wise and prudent men, I'm working against the very sovereign purpose of God to tear down that stronghold so that they become like what? Babies, for which the effectual call does, right? I mean, we're all wise and prudent until then, until God so reveals it. So Jesus says, all things are delivered to me and my Father, and nobody knows the Father but the Son, and no one knows the Son but the Father, and whomsoever the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's sovereignty. Nobody knows Jesus unless Jesus opens your eyes and makes you what? He takes the sinner, vain and wild, and makes him what? Like a little child. Subdues his will and binds his feet and leads him to the mercy seat of the gospel. If the preaching from this pulpit is introducing self-help, self-improvement, and the wisdom of men, We are working against and erecting the very stronghold we should be destroying by the power of God's weapons. Beloved, we must be zealous with compassion and meekness and gentleness with the Spirit of Christ to so exalt the saving power of Jesus over everything with nothing at all contributed to it. And then, only then, can we say the weapons of our warfare are not human, but mighty through God to pulling down the strongholds of men. Now the next stronghold, we'll look in the next stage of the warfare. We've got two more, briefly. Paul would then say, not only casting down imaginations, but bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The word thought means a purpose. Capturing. So Paul is not interested in just winning an argument about the gender of man. He's going to put that down. We'll win that argument. No, he wants to lead the sinner captive under the lordship of Christ. And that's what the knowledge of God does. If we've just won an argument, what have we done? So Paul's capturing and leading them into another land. I've reached the land of corn and wine where all the riches are freely mine in Christ. That's the aim of pulling down the stronghold is to lead people captive to the obedience of Christ. Thought, purpose. Purpose is the reason you do something. Why do you do what you do? My mom used to ask me that. Michael Allen, why are you doing what you're doing? I didn't know how to express it then, but now I'd say, Mom, everything I do, without doubt, is done to maximize my pleasure, and the love of self, and the joy of myself. Everything. That's my purpose, Mom. I didn't know it then, but I look back and that was it. That's why you do everything you do without grace. I don't care what it is. Your sole purpose is to live for the love of self and the love of pleasure. So what happens when we're captured by Christ And brought under His Lordship. Does He destroy my desire for joy and pleasure? No. He purifies it. And transforms it. So it's no longer the love of self and self-pleasure. It's the love of God and the pleasures and the joys in the ascended Christ. Which is the catalyst of obedience. Without it, we'll never obey. So the stronghold of man's self-love must be destroyed and it's destroyed by the gospel through the power of the work of the Spirit and brings us to the land of corn and wine where we see the Savior exalted and His love for us and His grace for us. If we don't teach the lordship of Christ, we're erecting strongholds instead of tearing them down. So this obedience is is not a straitjacket. It's an obedience because our hearts have been captivated by the love of Jesus. And it's superior to all my self-love, which I still struggle with. The joys and the pleasures in God and living for His purpose are far superior and they go on forever to my short-term, short-lived, pitiful self-love which I still struggle with. Do you? So, the gospel is calling for an all-out surrender to the supremacy of Christ and coming under His Lordship. But today the strongholds say this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. For which sinners say, that's good news because I love me and I have a wonderful plan for my life and you're telling me God says bring my plan and my love right into the church? Yes, come on. And then you have all kinds of people living in sin who need to be confronted with the loving gospel of Christ because they've been told God loves you and has a wonderful plan. My plan is for my pleasure. You're telling me that's God's plan. I'm there and I get heaven to boot. That is wonderful. No, friends. You must abandon every thought and purpose to the supremacy and the obedience of Christ. How are we doing Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he's near. Okay? All right? What's involved? Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. All of them? All of them. And then start fighting against them. My plans? My devices? That's the word in Isaiah 55 7. What I want out of life? Yes. That's foolishness. Why would I do that? You see the point? Isaiah 55 in about the fourth verse. I will give him to be a leader and a commander of the people. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus is going to be your leader. He'll be your commander. What is the commander? What does Jesus demand from the world? You forsake your way. You forsake your thoughts. You return to the Lord. He'll have mercy. This is what the commander in chief demands. What does that mean for me? Means I have to give up what I like? Give up what I love? Yes. For what? Verse 2, 3, and 4. Or somewhere in Isaiah 55, 2 and 3. Why do you buy bread that doesn't satisfy? Why do you labor that doesn't bring about what you're after? Come to me, the commander. Forsake your thoughts. Come under my lordship and obedience. Delight yourself in fatness. Now, what is that imagery designed to tell us? Delight yourself in the fatness of the love of God under King Jesus, come under His Lordship, and then, only then, can you start to obey Him. It's all laid out in Isaiah 55. Not that this obedience secures your righteousness, but it is the fruit of it. So Paul is saying his ministry which they misunderstood and its authority is to cast down strongholds for which the false teachers are trying to erect them in opposition to Paul and then to come under the lordship of Christ by purification of your desires through the new birth and purification of your pleasure so now you really see where true joy and pleasure is which is then empowering the very obedience for which Christ calls us to. Oh, how that needs to be understood in Christianity. So we're saying to sinners, as the gospel says to us, see something superior, see something more lovely, enter into the land of corn and wine, and eat and drink your thirsty soul and your hungry heart with the bread of life, and you will find the power to fight against those purposes, to fight against self-love, to fight against self-pleasure by eating, feasting with the bread of life. And then lastly, having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now we have to see this in the context of Paul's ministry. So what's he saying here? The word revenge means punishment. So Paul's ready to come with courage and do something to some who will not repent. What is he waiting for? Well, he's delaying his third visit until their obedience is fulfilled or complete. That is, any one of the rebels who repent, the meekness and gentleness of Christ is mercifully working through Paul's ministry to allow that to happen. But if they don't, Paul will come with his authority as an apostle and he will take revenge. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Everything when the Bible says, don't take revenge. I mean, what's Paul going to do? Get him in the head. Is he going to get physical? No, beloved. He is going to do what he told the church at Corinth to do. He is going to enact church discipline. And that's a concept that's gone in our culture. And I get it. Don't you? I mean, who wants to do that in obedience to Christ? It's hard. It's difficult. People leave. They get mad. It's heartbreaking. But Paul says, In my meekness, when I come, there will be punishment. This word is used in chapter 11. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged of the Lord, disciplined by the Lord, revenged by the Lord. So there were some that were sick, weak, and asleep. Why? Because God judged them when we as a church allow strongholds to be erected simply because we won't preach what the Bible says and we don't practice church discipline, we are not loving people. Don't apply your definition and my definition of love on the Scripture. You will confuse it every time. Love is willing to have the hard conversation. Love is willing to To do what God says. Because whatever God says for us to do in obedience to Christ, we know He's acting in love to His people. So the aim of Paul, for those that are still disobeying in punishment or church discipline, is recovery. Isn't that love? They say, well, it never works. Who am I to say to God what I think will work or not? It's obedience. It's not pragmatism. I don't decide, well, I think it'll work, I think it won't. I just simply obey the text of the Bible. And I get why churches don't do it. And I get why sometimes I don't want to do it. And you don't want to do it, right? There should be some reluctance. There should be some hesitation. We shouldn't rush in smiling about it. But nevertheless, Paul The third stage of his warfare, as his ministry as the apostle, when he comes to Corinth, any unrepentant members will be disciplined. Do you think Paul's unloving? He has the authority and the backing of God himself because he's God's apostle. So we as a church, with all compassion and all meekness and all longsuffering, trying every way possible, as Paul did, to bring about repentance of me or anybody that goes astray in the church, yet finally we must come to the place, in our meekness, we use courage and we act lovingly toward the rebellious sinner. With tears, with heartbreak, that is the definition of love. And Paul says, I'm willing to do that. Church at Heritage, are you... Do we have the weapons of our warfare to demolish strongholds? Not because we just want to put people down, but so that they would be captured by the knowledge of the gospel, the saving power of Christ, to be led into the land of corn and wine. And then when it's among our own membership, which Paul is talking about, he's not talking about people outside the church here. They're inside the church. He says, when I come, as the church had practiced, as he told us in chapter 2 of this letter, he himself, as the authoritative apostle. He had authority that none of us have to go into church of Corinth and say this is what must be done. And he would. And we must. Asking God for wisdom and grace and love to follow the process of Matthew 18 and do exactly what Jesus said must be done for his glory and for the good of the person who will not repent. May we understand The disposition of the warfare as a church, the weapons of our warfare, although there are many, yet the thing that binds them all together is the gospel, the knowledge of the Son of God, and then understand something about the stages of this warfare as a church. We're to be casting down, not building up. We're to be instruments in God's hands for capturing through the gospel and leading sinners into the way of righteousness. By God's grace alone. And then finally, being willing to use and practice church discipline as the case arises, whether it be me or you, if the occasion so calls for it. May God help us to be this kind of church. Let's pray. Father, you're a great God. You're merciful. And we are amazed and we are confronted. We are challenged. Every time we come to the Bible and we see another facet Of truth, where you're calling on us to act, that is absolutely contrary to our human nature, to our Adamic nature, and contrary to the wisdom of this world, and the way the world tries to solve problems with their own wisdom. Lord, give us the meekness that is persuaded by the Word of God alone, so that we would submit to the divine will, your will in Scripture, and your providence in such a way that the weapons that we have, that you've given, are not anemic, are not malfunctioning, are not just weapons gathering rust and dust, but the weapons that are used to brightly display and to bring a sharp, clear focus, the saving knowledge of your power in the gospel as you call sinners from darkness into light. Use us for that purpose in Jesus' name.